evening. I'm Anna Halligan, and this is the Ecology Hour. Tonight, I am joined by two fisheries biologists and researchers. Uh, I have Sarah Gallagher, who is a senior environmental scientist for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And I have Natalie Oaken, who recently completed her master's thesis at Humboldt State University and now works for the Natural Resources Conservation Service. So thank you both for joining me. I'm very excited to have a conversation with you both about the topic tonight, which is uh, focused on a recent study that was completed on the Mendocino Coast within Pudding and Casper Creeks. The study was designed to be a paired watershed before after control impact study. And it was focused on trying to understand the mechanisms by which large wood treatments affect the relationships between fish and their habitat. Before we launch into what um, turned into a very long and very interesting study, I would like to ask Sarah if she wouldn't mind giving us a little bit of an update about the salmon run this year. And if you could also describe the coastal monitoring project that collects all of the data about the salmon run locally too. Thank you, Anna, for having us both on tonight. Really appreciate it and excited to share our work. And my name is Sarah Gallagher and I work for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Um, as an environmental scientist. And my main focus is doing the salmon and steelhead monitoring along the Mendocino coast. And so um, we monitor populations here from Usal Creek in the north all the way down to the Garcia River. And the way that we monitor populations of salmon and steelhead is that we do spawning ground surveys. And so we go along um, many watersheds and a, a random sample to hike, hike the watersheds and look for spawning fish. And we count reds and we count adults. And from that data, then we can make um, estimates of how many adult salmon come back into the watersheds every year. So um, we've been doing this monitoring under something called the California Coastal Monitoring Plan, which is a, a really good scientific protocol that's used all the way from um, Oregon down to, I uh, sorry, the California-Oregon border all the way down into about Santa Cruz to monitor our threatened and endangered species of salmon and steelhead. So here on the coast, we have Chinook salmon, coastal Chinook salmon, we have um, Northern California steelhead, and then we also have California coast coho, which are endangered. So the way that What's happening this year, um, we, we spawning starts for these species about in December, and they come into the rivers as soon as the rains start and the rivers come up. And a lot of the rivers we have around here have bars, and so they need enough rain to open up those bars to even get the fish in. Um, this year, as people probably know, we had some uh, very early rainstorms, big rainstorms, and so we had a lot of fish come in quite early. It allowed the fish to get up high up into the watersheds, which is a really good thing. We want them to distribute throughout the watershed. And so um, luckily, fortunately, we had some good rain and we had um, a, a good coho uh, run come in and, and spawn. 
Um, our numbers are looking around average this year compared to our last 12 or 13 years of annual data. Um, a high number of coho returning to the entire coast is around 8,000. Um, it's still well below recovery targets. Um, and then their coho are about done spawning. Unfortunately, we've had no rain in January. And so that's really impacting um, our spawning steelhead right now, which are, they've been coming in since about January, but now they're kind of holding and waiting to spawn and they're having some trouble getting up into the watershed. So um, we really are hoping for rain. It's really important part for the, the salmon and all of us, but um, that's, that's where we're at with our populations this year. Um, we're about halfway through our spawning surveys uh, for the season, because we'll be continue until about through April. And then we'll start doing some of our um, juvenile uh, migration, out migration sampling using traps in some of our rivers to see how many um, juveniles are going out to the ocean. Thanks, that is great. I feel really lucky that we have this very kind of um, extended data set that's been collected by your program. And uh, it tells us so much about the status of the population of salmon overall, but it also helps us understand if the restoration activities that we uh, undertake to recover these species that are threatened and endangered are working. And that is kind of the point of this study that you and uh, Natalie had have been working on. So I'll just start by saying that before after control impact study is a mouthful. And we often refer to it as the Baki for short. And this Baki study included four years of pre-treatment data collection, which largely is tied to what you just described, Sarah, that's data from the Coastal Monitoring Project, and then four years of post-treatment data collection. And the study spanned from 2011 to 2019. And so that's the, the before and after part. And then the treatment, which occurred in the summer of 2015, included placing large wood in Pudding Creek in, I think it was like 80% of the total amount of stream habitat in Pudding Creek. Bogs were either placed by directly falling trees into the channel or by placing them with rubber tired equipment. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to describe what a Baki is. And I think maybe I should just pose this question to both of you. Can you explain what is a Baki and a paired watershed st uh, study and kind of give us a little bit of a background about how this study came to be. I'm happy to describe the Baki a little bit more and why it's super cool. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's objectively super cool, but I might be wrong. Um, so just like you're describing the setup of the study is paired watershed and the timeline is the before after part. So the B in Baki refers to the time period before the treatment. So from 2011 to when wood was placed into Pudding Creek in 2015. 
the A in Baki is the after period. So 2015 to 2019, 20 or so. And then the C and the I of the Baki are control, which was the watershed that did not receive any wood. And the I is impact or experimental. And in this case, that's Pudding Creek, which received a bunch of wood in the summer of 2015. And this is a really... Uh, useful, interesting study design because the way it works is you look at the trends in each watershed compared to themselves through time. And this controls for all sorts of changes that might happen on a larger scale, like climate um, or run variability or you know how much rain you have in a given year. So if we look at Casper from 2011 to 2020, you can see how the habitat changes, how the fish populations change annually, and then compare that information to pudding's timeline. So pudding fish from 2011 to 2015 is their pre-period and then pudding fish in the post-treatment period. So this lets you see if they trend the same in the first couple of years, that's kind of suggesting that they're a good pair. They trend, but then through time, you would expect the creek that you put wood into, Pudding Creek, to have some sort of treatment effect where it would be a different trend than what's happening in, in Casper. So I don't know if that is a clear way to, to think about it, but it's you get to think of each watershed trending with itself through time and then compare the paired watersheds. And I'll just, just to add to that, where this design um, and study came from, um, you touched on something good there, Anna, that I may not have mentioned, but um, we are, when we're doing this, this monitoring of the salmon and steelhead, we are looking at status and trends over time. And we're also trying to understand why our populations may be going up or down. And so built into these the extensive spawning surveys that we do along the coast in different uh, in a different design where we're just sampling all over the place in different watersheds, we have these, these life cycle station, monitoring stations set up that are nested within our um, bigger picture um, spawning habitat surveys. And so in these life cycle stations, which Pudding Creek and Casper Creek are both, um, we are collecting much more intensive data. We're collecting red data, but we're censusing the entire watershed. We're and this is where we have our out-migrant traps where we're collecting um, juveniles that are going out. So we have, we know how many fish are coming in, we know how many fish are going out, and we're collecting habitat data and, and a lot of other information on growth and survival that Natalie get, will get into a little bit more um, when she starts to talk about results from the study. But one of the reasons we were able to do a study like this is because we had this long-term data and we're able to take that. Um, actually, these two creeks had even longer than some of our other rivers, we had almost about 20 years. And so we could look at some of this older data and say, what is limiting um, survival for our juvenile coho and steelhead? What is happening in the freshwater phase um, where they're not doing as well? And so that's why we're doing a lot of this habitat restoration. There's a lot of impacts from uh, legacy logging um, and things that have happened for many, many years. And there's a lot of repair to be done. And so when we looked at some of this data, we said, well, what is limiting for our fish? And um, looking at flows, temperatures, numbers of fish, and some of the early studies, which um, 
some biologists before Natalie and I um, worked on from TNC and um, my predecessor came up with this idea and said, hey, is, is this treatment um, of wood really improving what's limiting in, in these rivers? And what we think is limiting is the overwinter habitat for coho. And so um, we're able to say what's limiting and, and wood treatment can improve that. And so is that treatment working? And really important part of this too is thinking about in a treatment at a watershed level scale. Um, like you said, they treated 80% of the, the rivers. So you can see a fish response to a, to a watershed level treatment. Right. And so my understanding was that that, that the data collected from the coastal monitoring project kind of supported this assumption that overwinter survival and low summer growth were major limiting factors for coho salmon yes. including and in Casper Creek. This study intends to determine if wood improves those conditions, right? Yeah, that's the goal. And uh, I guess that an important thing to note here is that wood restoration happens all over the place for fish. Um, often in the Pacific Northwest, coho salmon are limited by winter rearing habitat. So they need slow water. And the idea is that putting wood into the creek slows down water. That's the hope. Creates pools. We know that it, that it can slow down water in, in a lot of watersheds, but it's not that common actually to look at the fish response to these uh, habitat treatments. So that was the that was the goal here to see how does the habitat change with wood treatment and then in turn how do the fish respond to that? Are they actually being positively impacted in a lasting way? What were some of your assumptions about how fish would respond to this wood? Well, with the, some of the things that we thought we would be measurable based on the information that we could collect from our capturing fish would be, is, is growth improving? Um, are we getting fish that are growing larger over this winter period um, and or the summer period, where, which like you mentioned, is a, a period when growth is lower? Are we Along with that, um, we look also another factor we would look at is survival. Um, are we getting, when we capture fish in the summer and we recapture them in the winter, um, are we being able to tell if um, more survive after the wood treatment? Um, so those are, those are two things. Um, I think in, another part aside from fish is a big part of the study was actually looking at habitat too. We wanted to know if the wood was changing the habitat. And so we collected a lot of information on um, pool depth and channel morphology and uh, water temperature and all the different habitat types and um, through both watersheds. So we wanted to see pre and post, did the habitat actually change? Because we would expect there to be um, potentially more pools. Um, in the wintertime, we'd hope that we, we didn't actually measure velocity, but we hoped maybe the water would get out of the floodplains where the fish could feed more. And so we had some um, habitat measurements that were looking at that, if that had changed. And so it's, it's challenging. Um, we do have adult numbers to look at as well, but because they have a three-year life history, it takes even more years to understand if you're having an impact with your adult return. So 
um, we mentioned how long the study was. We would, we've only went through really a couple generations of fish. So it's, it's a little bit easier to look at the response of the juvenile fish um, to the adult, but it's, it's not to say that's not something you can look at over time. Maybe, I don't know, if at, Natalie, if you have any more to add to that. We have a ton of information from the habitat in these watersheds. And the, the key things we are interested in looking at were that wood density, that, that's referring to the volume of wood per the stream length. So Casper and Pudding aren't the exact same stream length. So we looked at wood density. And we're also really interested in the amount of slow water habitat and pools and things like cover, um, things that we think would be particularly important for coho fish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this study, it's, it's like a study within a study within a study because <laughs> yeah. you're, totally. you're looking, you're looking, I mean, you're, you're, you're comparing two different areas. So you're collecting data, the same data from these two different areas and you're collecting data about habitat and you're collecting data about fish. And, you know, maybe this is kind of obvious based on, you know, the kind of basic hypothesis that you were proposing, but can you talk a little bit more about what kind of data you collected and then, you know, what the results of that data told you? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm happy to talk about the, the fish stuff we, we looked at too. So, Sarah mentioned that these are both life cycle monitoring stations as part of the uh, California Coastal Monitoring Plan. And part of that plan is looking at outmigration of juvenile salmonids. So that means in Pudding Creek, we, we run a trap that is collecting fish and then if, uh, juvenile fish that are leaving the system when they're becoming smolts and they're gonna go live in the ocean. And we have a similar set up on Casper as well. So both watersheds are collecting out-migrating juvenile fish. So we collect data on them in the springtime there. And then in addition, the study had electrofishing in the summer and in the fall. So in that situation, we are tickling some fish out of the water and putting passive integrated transponder tags, which is a total mouthful, but they're pit tags, uh, which is a unique ID, little grain of rice size tag that we surgically implant in juvenile fish. And then we run antennas, arrays in these watersheds so that we can actually see those uniquely ID'd fish moving through the watershed and get an idea of where they are and when and at what point they exit and how long they're spending in different places. So we've got a ton of juvenile fish information to uh, get an idea of what their life histories are like through time in each creek. And um, we used all that information to get at growth and survival. And there's a, a, there's a lot of like weeds that we could go into here, <laughs> um, but I can give you the, the main take homes that I found looking at this data or we found together. Okay, summer and winter growth. That's, that is the for summer growth that's looking at how much did a fish grow from the middle of summer until the fall and in both of these watersheds, we know that that's a period of low growth. It's, that's just how it goes in, on the Mendocino coast. And then 
in the winter, the winter growth period is from fall capture until they're leaving the system in the spring. And we saw that both of these growth metrics for summer and winter increased in both watersheds, but pudding had consistently higher, pudding was the experimental watershed that received wood treatment. It had consistently higher growth. Um, the wood treatment response did not align with growth responses. So that's saying that we put a ton of wood into pudding and the growth wasn't so much higher in, in Pudding Creek to, to sort of match that. Um, it improved, but it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't what we would have anticipated in that you put a ton of wood in and you get way more growth. Both watersheds growth improved through time and the experimental watershed had higher growth in winter the whole time. So that was kind of unexpected um, in this situation. Let's see, uh, for survival, winter survival was looking at how, how a, each individual fish has this capture history. So you can follow them through time, starting in the summer, they get recaptured in the fall, you see them in the spring, they swim out of the creek, sometime after they get captured at those spring traps. So we have a really good idea of what's going on with them and can kind of estimate survival based on um, the ratios that we see of fish experiencing different types of life histories there. And what we found was that in the experimental watershed, survival stayed pretty level throughout the experiment. We thought that wood treatment would cause this big increase in survival through time, but it didn't. It didn't go down, but it stayed pretty level. And then in Casper Creek, our control that didn't receive wood, their survival actually increased through time. And they didn't have the same wood, wood supplementation that we put into Pudding Creek. So that was pretty surprising. Um, it's nice to see the survival wasn't decreasing in either watershed, that's really encouraging, but it certainly wasn't aligned with what we had hypothesized in this experiment. Even though the results didn't quite align with what your hypothesis was, which is that more wood would essentially produce more habit, more winter habitat and more fish, right? Or healthier mm -hmm. fish. There was a lot that happened in that eight-year time period, including two significant droughts. So to your point that it's good that we didn't see dramatic declines in either watershed, I think there's that, that given the time period that the study occurred, that's really great news. But I'm wondering, like, how do you think the results of the study were impacted by other factors potentially, like what um, components of the study may not, or the results I should say, may not be directly related to wood and may have been influenced by other um, factors. Yeah, I think this is super interesting thing to think about. Um, this, the timing of this study was, you know, 
really interesting is a simple way to put it, but the entire pre-treatment period before we put wood into Pudding Creek was an, an incredible drought, a really, really intense drought in California, like the worst drought that we've seen in 1200 years, according to a couple studies. So that is really, really hard on fish. Um, anybody that, yeah, I don't know if, if it, it was brutal. It was brutal from like 2013, 14, 15. It was really dry. Um, to, the point, just to the point where we didn't even have adults return to Pudding Creek in 2014 because the bar never opened. Right. So, oh, yeah. that's right. We had a complete run failure, right? Right. 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 And um, another thing to mention here is that the, the wood treatment that we put into pudding uh, we thought, I mean, it was pretty cool. It was a lot of wood that we put in and a lot of wood compared to, um, you know, some restoration that happens, but it still didn't actually create slow water habitat in the winter, according to our surveys. So maybe we didn't study the system for long enough. Maybe we could have put more wood in to create slow water habitat maybe the design wasn't quite right to create pools that we anticipated we would be creating um it could it could be so many things it could be the availability of natural wood in the system like what's the forest stand in the riparian area and it could also be how we surveyed we're going out in really high crazy flows to do those winter surveys it's kind of difficult survey in general honestly it's like usually raining it's it's chocolatey water and we're trying to measure slow water versus fast water and that's difficult and and can totally be improved upon so I think that it's probably a combination of a lot of things and I think that leads me to thinking about coming back um or, or maybe investigating it a little bit longer, like continuing the study or returning to the study and, and seeing how habitat has changed in time and how fish are responding later. Because we had this wild climatic event, the drought coinciding with the entire pretreatment period. And then we have these snapshot looks into winter habitat surveys, you know, each each year we just do one winter habitat survey. So it's possible that there's more information there to to get, you know, it's it's very possible that there's more details to the story and it's a really complicated story to tell. At least what I'm garnering from this conversation is that it's it's too it's almost too early to say with any certainty that wood doesn't result in more fish or more habitat. We can't really say that, but that might, it might be that if we continued to study this and collected more data over time, we may be able to get a better understanding of whether the results are related to the actual study design. And like you said, there's challenges with actually collecting data in hazardous conditions. I mean, these are the time periods where no one wants to be going out. It's even difficult to drive to the sites to get to them, much less 
yeah. walk to them and then measure all of the um, high flow <laughs> events. Um, right, and trying to hike up the the creeks in those high flow events, you know, <laughs> like yeah. it's a it's a timely survey. You have to get it done while it's still high flows, and and that can be really challenging. Right. But, but the study could be telling us some really important information for like, as a rec restoration practitioner, I am happy to hear that it's not that wood doesn't result in habitat benefits or in benefits to fish, but we may need to rethink how we are implementing these projects and as the study was going on, I think the restoration community was already becoming kind of keen to this notion that we could be placing a lot more wood in the channels um, mm -hmm. for any particular project. And this study kind of helps support that notion that perhaps we aren't putting enough wood in. And I also appreciate you touching on the kind of relative complexity of the riparian stand of trees along the channel, because this is something that I feel like the rest restoration community has understood for a long time and is, is essentially the pretense for putting wood in the channel is that most of our forests have been um, logged. And as a result, we have relatively young trees, although you did mention that we still do have some old growth trees, but that we're not recruiting wood naturally at a rate that is commensurate with you know, pre-development. And so there's less wood naturally going into the channel, even though the wood we've placed, the idea is that we'll put in a stopgap measure until those trees become old enough that they are suspect to windfall and things like that. But I think what we're learning is that we really have to put in quite a bit of wood in order to have that positive effect on winter habitat. And so I keep wondering if we, and this is probably a good question for you and Sarah, like how do you move on from here? Do you continue to study the area, the, you know, the experimental area and the control area as is to collect more data? Or do you try to add more wood, so adjust your experiment and see if more wood results in the habitat and fish response that we assumed we would observe? If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Ecology Hour, where I'm interviewing California Department of Fish and Wildlife environmental scientist Sarah Gallagher and recent graduate student from Humboldt State University, Natalie Oaken, about their study, which was conducted on the Mendocino coast and was looking at the relationship between large wood, fish, and habitat. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. We also stream live at kzyx.org. Yeah, that's a challenging one. If you, if you add wood now, you've kind of changed what you initially did if we continued to look at the uh, reaction. You know, we're, we are we do continue to collect, um, we don't collect the habitat data right now on, on Quitting Creek, but we are, there is an ongoing life cycle station. So we're continuing to collect the 
adult returns and the, and the juvenile um, and small out, out migrants? I don't know the answer to that. I, I guess I just be, before maybe maybe Natalie has an opinion because I my understanding is with the accelerated recruitment strategy, which was the way that was a strategy for the way this wood was put in, and it was quite a bit of wood and it was spread out through the entire watershed. And, and as Anna, you well know, it's it's pretty challenging to, I mean, you can put a lot in, but there's a lot of resources that go in, a lot of logistics. Um, and so it, at the time, I think it was the, it was trying to treat as much as you could with the resources they had. And um, with the intention with this accelerated recruitment is that over time, you would continue to build wood naturally on its own. And, and maybe with a, a younger stand that won't happen as, as fast. And so it, it could be worth to add more uh, wood to, to try to, accelerate you know uh, the, the process um, because maybe as we're discussing it just didn't have quite enough time to to change habitat enough for the, the fish um, because it di didn't build up more time and maybe we need more just high flow events and, and those kind of things uh, those also would contribute to it so um, those are it, it, the, the thing about this uh, study design I, I love that it's brought up new questions I think that's good science and I think that um, yeah, it helps us to decide how to move forward or how to alter the course with restoration, or um, is there some new approach that we need to be taking? So if you had not had Casper as a control, do you think your results would have looked different? Yes, totally. I think that, um, I think that we would have, it, it makes having the paired watershed allows for some context into the observations that we that we had in this study uh, if we had only looked at one watershed you would see a trend and say this is because of wood but having this paired watershed that wasn't treated you could say this is or is not because of wood at least you know like we could see that uh growth improved in both watersheds it wasn't just looking at putting seeing growth increase and saying wood did that um, we have a better understanding of things that are maybe due to more broader geographical scales you know i think that casper was super helpful in in providing perspective for this study Sarah, you know i know you've been involved with a working group that also works in these kind of like intensively monitored watersheds, which Pudding Creek is pretty fairly described it that way. And is does the Pudding Creek study, like how do the results from the Pudding Creek study compare to other intensively monitored watersheds, excuse me? Yeah, that's a, a, a great group that, um my predecessor got involved early with that they they use that the champ the columbia habitat monitoring protocols and so um the intensive mon an intensively monitored watershed is it's one that we we call that for this experiment it's it's where you have an experiment in a watershed where you already have this long-term monitoring program and you want to be looking at watershed scale fish and habitat responses so there's several of these watersheds up in Oregon and Washington um, where they're looking at um, they're looking at large wood treatment. They're also looking at dam removal like Elwha. Um, they look at beaver dam analogs. They, they look at a lot of different kinds of treatments, but wood added the addition of large wood is another one they look at. Um, pretty recently, the group, there's a nice working group that got together and they're trying to share these results. And we were able to uh, incorporate some of our uh, findings from this study. 
um, to share and it's um, in progress, like thinking about the results, but I think they see similar things to what we have seen. I think sometimes they see positive fish responses and sometimes they don't. And um, what I, it, it seems very dependent on the, the type of watershed where they, and how much wood they put in. I think there's a lot of variable results. Um, I think similar conclusions about needing more time um, to study it or for the treatment to be effective. Um, they also see, see um, some extreme weather uh, patterns that make, make it challenging to interpret the results. Like we say, we had a drought in the pre-section. So really the, the, our pre-experiment, so really only fish growth and survival would probably go up in both watersheds. So that those kind of things really do kind of make it a little bit more complicated. So yeah, so I think we have similar, uh, they see similar things. I think when you're trying to look at a habitat restoration in a watershed, when you're taking out a dam, it's a much more straightforward result. Um, you know that when you take a dam out, you're gonna have your stream processes, you know, the river's released. It's going to get out into the floodplains and create new habitat. And the fish are gonna, it's easy to say, did the, can the fish get upstream now? So those are a little bit easier to measure. So I think they see more success when you take out a barrier. Um, it's a little bit more harder, harder to uh, interpret when you're trying to look at um, just manipulating the habitat around and, and trying to um, change the channel structure and improve it for health. Yeah, well, and I know, I think that's part of the reason why I was so surprised when you, um, you know, provided your results from the study because I had heard about other Baki studies in Oregon and other places in the Pacific Northwest. And they kind of conclusively said, well, putting wood in stream channels is good. And we've always operated off of an assumption that it has a positive response to habitat, but we also weren't measuring winter habitat. We were measuring summer habitat because that's a lot easier to measure. We were looking at, you know, did this log scour a pool and how deep was it? And, you know, do we have more wood than we did before? And we could say all of that with a lot of certainty, like, yes, we're doing great things. Well, an important part of our study too, is that we didn't see it. We also looked at summer habitat pretty extensively and did not see a change in our summer habitat either. I think it just supported, because we didn't see habitat change in the summer and it was, it was more challenging to see that winter habitat if it, got up into the floodplains and, and, and increased slow water habitat. But I, I think um, that it was another, just more evidence maybe why fish didn't respond because the habitat, we didn't see change um, right. even in the summer habitat. Yeah. Well, Natalie, this must have been really challenging for you as you were <laughs> writing your master's thesis, because I can just imagine here you have an immense, body of data and how did you sort through all of that and make decisions about what you could and couldn't say conclusively like that it seems like it would have been really hard to put together a, a thesis because there are this is such a dynamic study and there's so many different factors to take into consideration right yeah you're you're right. <laughs> You're right, Anna. It was a lot of data to look at. And I think that critical component of this was having really specific hypotheses going into it. Just here are my ideas about the relationships between habitat and fish that are 
you know, they exist. People have done tons of studies on these relationships. And I have reason to believe that they're, you know, they interact with each other, that the amount of cover, the amount of slow water, the amount of wood has some kind of impact on fish growth or fish survival. So it sort of narrowed down the relationships I was looking at with my statistics and my analysis. Um, but it's still, it's kind of, you know, there's some detective work, like you, you get model output, you see some results and you're like, why is this the case? <laughs> like, why did survival stay level in pudding and go up in Casper? It's hard to know. And, and, you know, we have this information and then it's up to us to decide what are the reasons for this. Luckily though, there's a ton of data and it just exists now. And we can, we can look at it again and again in different ways and hopefully piece together what happened and come back to it, you know, in the future when we have even a longer data set. Um, yeah, I, I think that, I think that keeping in mind the goals of the project kept the analysis for it, uh, you know, manageable. <laughs> Knowing that the goals were, were the limiting factors addressed. Did we actually make slow water rearing habitat for fish? And did that increase growth and survival for fish? Because there are so many questions that we could be asking from this data set but those were the those were the primary goals here. And did the study change the way that you think about the relationship between wood and fish and habitat? Kind of, yeah. I guess that um, it made me think more about treatment. It made me think more about how how and why we're putting wood into the watersheds and really emphasized to me the importance of trying to trying to affect process-based change. A lot of restoration practitioners talk about process-based change and the idea that everything in the watershed is connected and that the riparian feeds wood into the creek, which creates pools, which support fish. Um, you know, the sediment balance is always in flux. These things that are super complicated. There's this crazy dynamic web happening uh, in a watershed, in every watershed, and that we need to think about the context of wood treatment and how that's going to be different watershed to watershed. I think that understanding what the goals are, like what part of the process are you trying to get at and what what might it take to make self-sustaining change is huge i think that in this experiment with pudding that might be an important part of what i'm left with here is how do you create self-sustaining change in a watershed where we put in a bunch of wood and didn't see the response that we expected. So what are we missing about the processes happening here? Is it the time scale that we didn't quite understand? Is it the scale of the treatment, the duration of the study? Um, I think it's super, super useful for study design going forward to think about 
what we did here, what we could potentially do differently or, you know, add on to. And then in the meantime, we have this massive data set to sort of prod around in and, and get more information from. So it really speaks to the importance of long-term monitoring, which Sarah, I know you know all too well, can be challenging to do anyways. I mean, it's it's hard to, for one, to just have the funds available to do this monitoring because it takes a lot of man hours to do this work. Do you, either of you, could either of you talk a little bit about that component too of this and, and would you, so, I mean, do you have recommendations for how this or other wood projects should be monitored moving forward so we can try to address some of these questions? Well, I'll, I'll first just I'll say I agree with you about the long-term monitoring. I mean, that's, I, I think that we have a really good thing going um, on the Mendocino Coast right now. And, and you're right, it takes a lot of resources and really dedicated people to hike miles and miles and miles of stream and partnerships with, um, we have a great partnership with Lime Timber and Mendocino Redwood Timber. But, you know, most of our watersheds here are, it's, I think it's about 80% timberland. And so having partnerships with landowners, we we reach out to lots of landowners to just to get permission to walk through properties and people are really supportive. So it's a huge effort in, and it's a community-based effort, I think too, because it takes so much support, but also um, to speak to the importance of the data understand if we're recovering these populations, we really need to continue to do this um, this monitoring over time. And these kind of studies um, that we're talking about to look at restoration, um, that is so important to know if they're effective or not, because we're really trying to understand why the trends are going up and down. And, um, and so, yeah, I think but it's my career and my passion and my life and I'm supportive of it. And I, and I think it's, it's, we're doing a, a great job. Um, and it's only one component of the, the species life history too. You know, they have, they spend this huge chunk out in the marine environment. We can't do a lot there, but where we can, and we hope we can make a difference with recovery is in this freshwater environment. And, and there's lots of different ways to restore habitat. And so um, I think that we might need to shift our focus towards something different. And so this kind of information can help inform that way. Absolutely. Do either of you have any recommendations for practitioners of this particular treatment type? Like whether it be their approach to implementation or whether it be the approach to monitoring that restoration work after it's been um, put into place? I have, I guess, I feel really strongly about effectiveness monitoring. And I know that it's hard to get funding for, you know, post-restoration work. You put you put the wood in or you fix the floodplain or you build some off-channel habitat, something that should be awesome for fish. But I feel like it's so important that we actually see whether or not it's working because this is a lot of effort and these fish are endangered. So I think it, it's super critical that we're continuing to investigate whether or not these things are working and to continue to try new things so that maybe at some point we'll figure out 
you know, something amazing that can really help fish. I think we're on our way for sure. But if projects, restoration projects don't have effectiveness monitoring, um, how will we ever know? I, I think that that's such a key part to planning restoration is uh, that after implementation phase of seeing what changed and if, if it's doing the thing that we hope it does. Yeah, I mean, it was actually a really unique opportunity for us to conduct this study. And, and basically time is not on our side for the recovery of salmon with predictions of California native salmon going extinct in 50 years. So I agree if we could, you know, you either collect data over a really long period of time or you collect lots of data from lots of different areas and replicate those data sets in another way. And so um, maybe that's the take home is that we really do need to, in addition to think, rethinking the way that we implement these projects, we also need to kind of push for more data collection of those restoration treatments. Is there anything that you would do differently we do study, both watersheds have coho and steelhead in them. And we did collect information on steelhead, just like coho, but we didn't have um, a lot of uh, enough samples of our fish to look at that really clearly. And so probably increasing the sample size for um, juvenile steelhead would probably have helped um, be something we would do differently. Yeah. I agree with that. I think um, steelhead are also really important in these watersheds and we have information on them, but not quite as much. So it would be uh, useful to investigate how these, how these fish are responding to the restoration they were doing that's mainly aimed at coho recovery, but steelhead are in these systems too, and they're experiencing these changes as well. Um, I, I totally agree. I also think there were, I mean, we got a ton of habitat information, largely in the summer. And I think that based on the things that we think are limiting to fish, I think it would be really interesting and important to look at some more winter habitat information to record more winter habitat data, specifically things um, related to floodplain connection and access for fish to floodplain habitats and winter flows. And our winter flows are seeming to get increasingly low. So what kind of floodplain access is there uh, given different low winter flows? We are seeing some changes happen pretty quickly and uh, it'd be good to know what kinds of restoration allow for access to food and slow water in these systems. If we were going to change this study at all, I think it would be really interesting to look at the, the food web and the dynamics, because I think there's yes. some really the stuff that like Gabe Rossi's doing right now and the, uh, understanding that is another part that could be really informative. Yes, right. And that's kind of what I was thinking about when we talk about maybe we should look at the floodplain more. It's like maybe we should look at food more. I just want to thank you both for the work that you did on this study, but also just like the work that you do on the day to day. Cause again, a lot of sweat equity goes into monitoring these streams. And it's been 
you know, really enlightening for me to learn about this. It's definitely making me think about how we plan and develop our projects a lot differently. And it really makes me want to collect more data because (laughs) I want us to prove this hypothesis right that would, will result in more fish and that would, does improve conditions in the winter. But that's the beauty of, you know, unbiased science is like sometimes we need to be pushed in a direction and, and good sound science can help do that. Right. Um, and it's important, right. It's important that we're questioning the things that we keep doing um, and making sure that we're actually on the right track. And I think that we are, you know, despite all of this. So yeah, I guess that just to make sure that we're doing everything that we can. Absolutely. In the best ways that we can. Any other thoughts about the Baki study or ideas about restoration that you feel like you want to share? I have a, I just want to say that this was such an incredible collaboration. The Baki study was, you know, there, there were the Nature Conservancy and NIMPS and Trout Unlimited and CDFW and Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission and Humboldt State, which is now Cal Poly Humboldt. Like it was a huge collaboration. Lime Redwood Forest Company and Jackson Demonstration State Forest. Like it was just a ton of people coming together to do really good science. And I think that uh, this is the direction that we should be taking. every this is important to all of us i hope and i think that this kind of cooperation um getting people's different skill sets together to do the best possible work we can be doing for these fish is so important and like you said anna it's timely like these are imperiled fish populations so i i just am so grateful to be a part of it and um, i hope that this kind of collaboration can continue moving forward Thank you. That is is such a valuable contribution to this conversation. And and you're right. It it really is pretty impressive how many groups and organizations came together to facilitate this study. These studies are really hard to implement and not, I don't think any one entity could do that well. It was the collaborative effort that really helped bring it home. And I should actually say the entities that did fund this study include the NOAA Restoration Center, the Nature Conservancy, and California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And without those grant funds, we would not have been able to complete this work. I will second, yeah, I second that with all, with the collaboration. I, I feel like it's a, it's a special place to be working here because I feel like so many people get, a, get along really well and, and, and lots of different minds coming together and, and cooperation. And so, yeah, I think that's what makes a lot of this work really well for the resources. I agree. And in that, and maybe ending on a positive note, you know, I think those collaborative efforts have potentially resulted in benefits to our salmon populations here because compared to other places on the California coast, even though they are modest, we are seeing positive trends with regards to adult spawners returning to our streams. 
And I don't have the data to support it, but I would like to think that that is a reflection of the collaborative effort that has been deployed here to implement restoration projects. Yeah, I think exactly. You're right. And and we have we have degraded a lot of the habitat along the coast over time. You know, it's taken a hundred plus years to get to where we're at and it's going to take time to get back. Um, I think there's a lot of good practices going on in land management now um, where we're not negatively impacting as much as as we were, but it's going to take some time. And you're, you're right. We do have something kind of good to start with. And I think we can really build from that. We have land bases that are connected, um, big tracts of land, um, not as much influence um, with people and populations here as, as some other places where coho aren't doing as, as well in the more Southern population. And that concludes another episode of the Ecology Hour. Thanks to my guests, Sarah Gallagher and Natalie Oaken, and thanks to the listeners for tuning in. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.